0: Here's something I've never thought about before. What happens with my private medical information if I'm in an emergency room of the hospital? What are my rights with regards to police presence in that same emergency room? And what if the police are actually also playing the role of hospital security?
1: Today, we're excited to have Ji Sun Song return to the podcast to talk about all of those things as part of her new research and soon to be published note in the Harvard Law Review. Yay, Ji Sun, regarding the role and presence of police in emergency rooms, and also what medical providers and laypeople may want and need to consider about how patients are treated and information is handled in that same setting.
0: If all of what we said is new to you, as it was new to us, this is a must-listen episode. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. I'm glad we had that conversation about election and status and what's going on in this country, because I think we needed to get that off our
1: chests before we begin talking about yet another light topic, you know. I know. Just, you know, chit chat like we always do. So... (laughs) Okay, so today I'm super excited because we have Jisun Song back on the podcast and it's been a minute. So, you know, but we have something big to talk about today. And first of all, congratulations on getting what we're about to chat about published as a note in the Harvard Law Review. Look at you. Thank you. For those non law people, that's a big, big deal.
0: I just need you to know that because. <laughs> That's a big freaking deal. Okay, folks. So you got to pay attention.
2: Thanks, guys. It was not expected, but I'm I'm happy that it's there because then it gets a lot of attention. So, Yeah, and we get to talk
0: about the topic. And it's so relevant because I think this is something what we're going to dive into is so relevant to our day-to-day lives, but we don't really think about it, especially if we live in certain bubbles. So I'm really excited because it also has to do with the police and defunding or reallocating resources for the police, reimagining the roles that they have in our society. In particular, you know, last time we talked about the criminal justice system and juveniles with you. Now we get to talk about The police as they relate to the ER. So Misasha, I'm going to let you, since you guys have an even
1: longer background, talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I am super excited because since I read your note, I have so many questions. So I'm super (laughs) glad that we get to sit here and chat about it. And P.S. I love having smart friends because we just get to, you know, Rap about all of this. Yay. You know, so as Sarah mentioned, we're back today with the lighter topic of the role of law enforcement in emergency rooms. Just kidding about the lighter stuff, but we have a lot to talk about. But I want to start with how you became interested in this particular topic, because I think there's a story here or a couple.
2: Yeah, I think that I'd always wanted to be a doctor but then I can't stand blood so like when I was a public defender I would just kind of be like oh how does this like relate to like doctors and triage and I think I was just like thinking about doctors a lot and I also kind of like built them up in my mind which I don't know I was kind of being especially in like the criminal world like when you bring in like hospital records somehow like doctors and nurses are seen as incredibly credible witnesses and I think I kind of just like also thought that based upon my own personal experiences too. And then I had a 15 year old client and he was a foster kid as well as in the delinquency system. And then I got a call one day that he had been shot in the head by the police and that someone needed to go to the hospital right away. And that he was in the emergency room. So he doesn't, he didn't, you know, he was, he had run away from his group home. So he didn't have any kind of like formal guardian His parents were obviously out of the picture. So I ended up being like his de facto guardian for about three weeks while he was in the hospital. But then I, so I get to the hospital and then I'm trying to get in and they weren't, they're not letting me in. And I'm like, why aren't you letting me in? And they're like, well, the police said, told, told us that we can't the kid get and can't have any visitors. So I was like, well, that's weird because I know that there's nothing going on in the delinquency side that would keep me from seeing him. And even if there is any kind of like charge lodged against him, he still has a right to counsel. Right. So like he still has a right to me. So I ended up like pushing my way in, like calling and like emailing the general counsel of the hospital. So I end up going in and I'm like, so surprised by one that the hospital had just kind of like let the police dictate what happens to this kid. But then there's this 15 year old kid and he's in so much pain. And I started talking to his trauma team and they're like feeding me back this narrative that clearly the police had told them right about, they're like, well, he almost tried to kill a police officer. So that's why he was shot. Cause I was like, you're not giving him pain meds. Like you need to give him more payments. He lost an eye. He's about to lose a second. Like, and so that, I don't know what the trauma team thought, but I think that there was a sense that, oh, here's a kid. He did something really bad. The police said he did something bad. And I don't know if it ended up changing his treatment, but it was just kind of like this gloss over the way everybody viewed him. That changed obviously as like, I sat there like every day and like bringing like the nurses treats or like whatever you do, you know, if you're like, being a patient advocate for a family member, but they just suddenly it changed the way I saw doctors and nurses. I was like, "Whoa, they are interacting with police in a way that I didn't think about before. And then fast forward, I had a girl who was pregnant and she was developmentally disabled. And her mom who was hospital security was like, I really want her to have, to give birth here. And she was in juvenile hall. So I was like, well, her probation officer already found a place with a birthing center, a doula and everything at this other hospital. But the mom was like, no, I trust my hospital, even though I think, you know, it's kind of like misguided because then the girl ends up there, she has her ankle bracelet on. And then during the middle of the night, she's like, ask the nurse to help. This is like the first few hours she's there with her baby, asked to help her with the diaper changing because she didn't want to like hit the umbilical cord thing. And then the nurse decided that this was obviously a sign that she couldn't care for the kid. And so called CPS that night. And so then suddenly, like the girl's getting discharged, the baby's going to be taken away from her. And then I'm like in this whole kind of like trying to set up her house at home to make sure that CPS thinks it's okay. So I'm like, oh, there are like all these channels that are kind of between hospitals and law enforcement in a way that I had not realized in my prior like six or more years as a lawyer. So that was my path, but it all kind of started from this idea like, oh, they're like there to help. Oh no, actually you're not maybe that different from these other actors. Like, you know, when we see teachers in schools and stuff with police officers. So,
1: wow. And, you know, I remember a little bit about your, that first client. Cause I remember at the time when you were going to the hospital or you mentioned that, but I didn't know the full narrative of, you know, the police and how, that what they had told, you know, hospital staff, doctors, nurses had, you know, linked to his treatment. And that is something I never thought about. So I think that's so powerful when we think about the role of doctors and nurses, and then the role of the police in changing the course of how doctors and nurses may treat or view patients. So- Which
0: on one hand, if you think about watching all of those shows like Grey's Anatomy, which has been on TV forever, you always see these cases where it's like, no, we have to save them anyway, because that's our Hippocratic oath. And like, we must do what's right by the patient. But then you kind of have this. But if this is a bad person and there's a good person over here who also needs my attention right now, how do you make that moral choice of who gets my attention? And we're all human. So I think it is it makes sense to some degree that we want to help the good guy, if you will, but the fact that the police play this unintended, whether it's intended or not, play this role in shaping people's perceptions or doctors and nurses, caregivers' perceptions of the value of a human being is shocking. And it is something that I don't think many people have considered before. Those stories were really powerful.
2: that the more i cuz so there's like the use of i think a lot of when i first started talking about this with a lot of doctors it was this issue of like oh we see patients who come in who we think may have suffered use of force by police but there's really no avenue for us to report it like who are we going to report it to like we have to report child abuse elder abuse other kinds of things but there's not no clear path to do that so that was actually one of the first things i started looking at but then I started to notice like there's all these other ways in which police are just kind of there. So I started then observing an emergency room for a couple day days for, I think, three night shifts. And it's just shocking to me. Like there were just at some points, it seemed like there are more law enforcement officers in a place than treatment people. And nobody seemed to really know why they were there, but they were there. And I thought, That was really weird too, because you think about police and all the problems that they have kind of like in on the street, even, you know, when they're like stopping and frisking or whatever the things that we read about. But then when people are particularly vulnerable in a place like the emergency room, there are things that the police have access to. And if the hospitals and medical providers are just kind of generally letting them in, what does that mean for the people who are in there who are particularly vulnerable and politically powerless so they're not gonna go out and be like, oh, I suffered a HIPAA violation, right? Like that's not realistic in any way. So, but the funny thing about the Shonda Rhymes, since I have a research assistant and she has now restarted watching Grey's Anatomy. And so she's been an RA on this project. She's like, it's so interesting to see like how in the beginning of Grey's Anatomy, they're working more with police but she thinks that the writers have been, I mean, or just like the general gestalt of like Hollywood has become so like much more woke that towards the end now, it's like completely different. So now I have to go rewatch it to see what it, if that's actually true.
1: Me too. Cause I did not think about that arc over time, but, you know, we're recording this right now at the start of November, 2020. And, you know, when we were texting about this episode, Jisan, you were mentioning also that, you know, just... Last month, there was a case of a deputy shooting, like actually at UCLA Harbor Medical, you know, which sort of merges everything because it's not only police in the ER, it's like a police shooting at a hospital. And I was wondering if you had thoughts about that shooting because it's so recent and you know, has that made any changes in the national dialogue around police in the ER? Or, I mean, it's not that we haven't had a couple other things going on in early November of 2022.
2: So, <laughs> well, I think there's been a lot of organizing in Los Angeles around this. So, UCLA Harvard, there was a shooting about, I think, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. But there was also one five years ago where actually someone was shot and killed at the same hospital. And, At that point, I think that there was a lot less attention paid, but I think right now the doctors at UCLA are much more wanting it to change. So the hospitals kind of differ, but UCLA and USC, how they intersect with the county hospitals in Los Angeles, they end up having sheriff substations that are in their hospitals apparently. And so then the sheriff's department of Los Angeles County ends up coming in a lot. So this is separate and apart from the hospital security. Right now, actually, there was a, on the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, they had a vote last week or October 27th, I think, to do an inspector general's report on the presence of police in the ED. And so that, I think, report, I think is going to be due in 60 days. There's a small but growing number of doctors who are, who are organizing around this. So like in San Francisco General, There has been a divest from San Sheriff's Department because they actually employ Sheriff's Department as their hospital security, but they've also had a ton of use of force incidents. I mean, they don't have the same kind of death or shooting that UCLA Harper has had recently, but a midwife had been on hunger strike in the summertime. I'm not sure. I think that, and all these doctors have started this kind of like divest from Sheriff's Department because it turns out that they're spending millions of dollars on Sheriff's Departments coming in as hospital security And there's concerns about that. And so there's a lot of conversations that are going on in hospitals about like, let's reevaluate police presence. But there's a lot of very interconnected kind of enmeshed ways that police interact with medical providers. So like you have mandatory reporting laws, you have case law of constitutional rules that talk about how medical providers are important to help police ferret out crime and criminals. And so there become a lot of competing obligations that I think are very difficult for medical professionals to kind of like separate out. And so I think it's relevant to the defund conversation because I think just because you take police out, right? Like you say, oh, we're not going to give police this amount of money. It doesn't mean that they completely exit the scene, right? Their footprint still remains in lots of different ways because And the part of what interests me about the hospital, what I found so fascinating in the first place is that you have all these intersecting things about violence, safety, right? People's ideas of safety, both like the providers, our idea of safety as patients going in. And then the people who are coming there who are victims often of violent crimes. But then like, what can we do about privacy for those people? And what's the line between like letting police come in to solve crimes versus police coming in and performing really overbroad actions. So I think that there's like, that's what makes this so hard to tease out. And that's what I'm finding now and talking to doctors too. Like they're so interested in changing things, you know, in some hospitals, but it's like, how exactly do we change it? And how do we do it so that we're not like losing police officers who might be necessary? And like a lot of nurses really rely on police officers to provide security because there's like workplace violence issues at the hospitals, et cetera. So- Yeah, I loved, like the points
0: that I've just taken from you are stuff like, you know, there is some need. So one of the things that I heard was that this is a very complicated issue, one that has not been examined really closely yet. And while there is on one hand a need for some sort of security or law enforcement to protect the safety of those who are working in the ER, there's also this super gray line of how the people who are working in the hospitals are being used to do things potentially against privacy law and against the best interest of the patient at that time in order to ferret out crime and that sort of stuff. But I mean, I want to talk about how that applies to the everyday person, because I want all of us to imagine right now what the ER looks like at your local hospital or wherever you've been before, because I think it's really important in order for us to position this conversation to know that the ER that you might be thinking about right now, like I picture, for example, the children's hospital ER that I had to take my daughter to because she bit through her tongue, fallen off of like a playground and that sort of stuff. Right. And it's sparkling clean. There's all this parking spot. Like you walk in and they welcome you with this beautiful, like safe area. Right. But that is not everybody's ER. There is a huge range. And from what I understand, it's largely dependent on where you live and how wealthy you are. So given that context, can you help us just set the stage about the difference in ERs and how they are used so we can then talk about the people that are being affected most by this police presence?
2: Yeah. So like emergency care, like just by and large, just generally is like now has become one of the most important sources of healthcare in our country, right? It's like it now accounts for more than half of hospital-based care. But then for vulnerable economically and socially vulnerable populations, it serves a different function. So it serves a really important safety net function because often those populations rely on emergency care for their primary care. And these people might be uninsured, like less insured. And so they end up getting funneled into either public hospitals or things that are are called like safety net hospitals in a local area that often coincide with being trauma one facilities. So these are like kind of the hospitals that tend to be more overcrowded, that tend to have more police presence because of the nature of the cases that end up there and also where they're located. So there's in the emergency care, I also talk about how there's become the stratification. Like, so you and I, we can, there's probably like a ton of emergency care options we can go to. Like we can go to the ER. If we have a really violent injury, we can go to like the trauma one facility ER, but then there's like the local ER that you're talking about, that's like fancier, like, you know, if I went to Stanford ED, right, or, and then there's like the urgent care center, right? Like there's all sorts of ways in which, or we can go to our primary care doctor. We can just like do a video conference and be like, can you fulfill my prescription? But for people who are uninsured or on Medicaid or poor or who don't know how to navigate the healthcare system, that's just kind of labyrinthine, very complicated, they go to the emergency room because that's like most accessible to them. They will get immediate, they don't have to make an appointment like weeks in advance. And they could just show up there. And these emergency rooms, the ones that are safety net, if they get in any kind of federal funding, they can't by law turn away patients. So this was like a reason that in 19 the in the 1980s they passed a law saying this because there's a practice like patient dumping because hospitals were, you know, losing money because they weren't getting reimbursed for this care. So the ED that I'm thinking so like one a couple of the EDs that I'm talking about is like You have a treatment center that's like the emergency room. It's probably fairly crowded. You might have patients who are lying in gurneys and hallways. You might have two entrances. So like you have the trauma bay where the ambulance will bring people in and the police can come in that way. And you'll also have like a waiting room area or a lobby area. And some of those are like monitored by metal detectors or such, like you have security. So that's the kind of like physical space that I'm talking about.
0: Got it. And then, so if we're talking about the problems that are posed in those sorts of hospitals. This is sort of tricky, but I think it's important that we talk about it. Why should people who don't live in those areas, why should I, who has access to all of those healthcare options care, If I'm not the one who's going to be affected by the police presence, and maybe this ties into patient rights, but like, I want to understand why the system is something we need to be paying attention to.
2: So even though I say I end up saying in my research, because there's not like actually that much data, there's not actual direct data that shows like how this is based upon like race and class. I mean, it's just highly likely, right? Because of the convergence of like certain kinds of minority groups that show up in those emergency rooms. But these laws that I'm talking about, I'm talking about both constitutional laws and statutory laws, like legislative stuff, it create this kind of enmeshment between law enforcement and medical providers exist for everybody, right? They're not specific to these locations. So like under the constitutional rules right now, the courts have said, the Supreme Court hasn't dealt with this issue, but like courts all over the country have said, well, emergency rooms are essentially public for police, right? So like you have no expectation of privacy in emergency rooms. So part of it I think is because the cases that, you know, were litigated and came into these, led to these constitutional rules, like maybe they were these overcrowded places, but it's not like the courts make distinctions on this, right? So like the rules apply to everybody. And secondly, I think that, you know, for Dorothy Roberts and Michelle Goodwin have done a lot of work on reproductive health of women and how medical providers funnel a lot of information to law enforcement based upon like their ideas of like motherhood like whether a pregnant woman was using drugs or just somehow doing something to like harm her fetus. And and there's been so and that I think is also like completely generalizable. Like obviously like it might end up affecting black and brown women more because of the biases that are inherent in the system, but the rules that I'm talking about are generalizable to everybody. So it's not like the rules that exist about the doctors having to report something that you do exist for you and me as they do someone else. And so I think that it's not just like a space and person specific rule that exists in law. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think what you just said about the ER being considered a
0: public space, when usually you go to the ER, when you're in an awful lot of pain or discomfort, or like you're not at your best, and you're certainly not thinking clearly, probably because you're worried about something. That's why you're there. And so to be taken at that time or targeted in some ways and not have your privacy protected is actually, that's scary. And that should affect all of us. That should impact all of us to pay attention to this. So thanks for saying that.
2: Yeah. And I also think that there's just kind of like a more general way of thinking, like, do we want our medical providers to be eyes and ears of police in this way? Like, is that what we want, right? Like, if you go back to the very first, like, reporting laws that were like for about gunshot wounds there's like this 1926 or 1927 article written by this doctor in the Journal of American uh, JAMA. And he's like, why do I have this reporting obligation when I'm the one who's like that person needs for help, right? There are like 10 other people that person has seen and other people who can say that person suffered a gunshot wound before it got to me. What does it say about why are you imposing this upon medical providers? Like, don't we have some kind of like sacrosanct obligation to protect our confidences with our patients that should override this. I mean, why is it our responsibility? Right. And I think that what you're finding is that medical professionals, some of them are like, I'm not able to do my job or I'm not sure if I can do my job. If where's the line, like in the trauma bay, like if they're treating the patient, like sometimes the police will come in and then the trauma surgeon have to be like, you have to step back now because I have to actually treat the patient. And so if police officers think, oh, this is a really porous place that I can go into, like HIPAA doesn't mean anything for me because I have a gun on badge, then I think that impacts all of us about what we think about who should be doing policing versus who should be people like lawyers, Like, right? Like lawyers have like really robust confidential rules and ethics and you think that medical providers do, but then it turns
1: out that they don't, not as much. I think that's so important to keep in mind, the whole theoretical concept and the bigger picture, right? Not just my individual impact, but you know, on a larger scale, who do we want you know, having access to private information and how do we want that access dictated, I think, is something that we've been hearing about a lot. We've been talking about a lot. And I think that it's important to remember that those questions exist in a lot of different spheres of life, including the ER that we, you know, may not have considered before—that it does impact everyone equally on that level. And Jason, you were talking about medical professionals and this, you know, tough space that they're basically being put in in a lot of ways with regards to the police. Like, where is that line of reporting? Like, what do they have to say? How can they best serve their patients? You know, besides if there's any other tough spots out there, you know, that they are thinking about, I'd love to hear that. I'd also love your thoughts on how should medical professionals, you know, assert their rights or how can they, or can they at all in these scenarios, how it's currently situated?
2: Well, I think that there's two things going on that I've been thinking about. One is that medical providers are, and doctors, and I think they operate kind of like with more bright line rules than what we give police, right? So like police are kind of, are regulated primarily by the constitution. And so these are kind of by design supposed to give them a lot of discretion, right? And so like I've had, doctors ask me, well, is this a fourth amendment violation? I'm like, well, it depends, right? Because like, I mean, I might see it as a fourth amendment violation. The police might not. And it really, we don't really know until a court adjudicates it, like, or decides it because it's, these are kind of like ex post rules that is so ex post meaning like it's after the fact rules that are developed. And so like, we were just talking yesterday about like, okay, so police officers can, if they have probable cause, they can arrest you, right? Like let's say Misasha, like you're walking down the street and an officer comes up to you and says, "I have probable cause to arrest you." What would probably be your likely response? Be like, "I don't know if you have probable cause. Come back with a warrant, or I'm going to call my lawyer." Right? Like so, this like this this idea of like, okay, there's maybe what police officers have to prove later on, or prosecutor has to prove later on the line down the line versus like what actually is happening vis-a-vis you and me. And I'm saying like, what doctors. I think are experiencing is that police like doing their job. Right. So like they're asserting the authority and they're doing investigations and like their job isn't to like, stop and be like, Oh, is this like, does this tick off all the boxes? Their job is like, in the moment, I need to investigate. So I'm going to investigate. And I don't know if it's, I'm not saying like, this is like a, some kind of by design, like pushing authority, but this is what we've given police officers. We've given police officers, the ability to flex their authority. And then medical providers, I think they see it and they think, oh, well, they must be doing it because it's lawful, right? And maybe it's lawful. Two, I'm busy <laughs> doing other things. I'm saving someone's life, so I don't have time to deal with it. And three, there might be other things going on like tiredness, bias, right? Like we know that medical professionals and racial minorities. There's like a long history and continuing history of bias and discrimination in medical treatment. So it's like, there's a whole set of things that I think make it so that medical providers are not necessarily best situated in the moment to make judgments about what they're doing is right in terms of protecting patient privacy or not.
0: What are, like, do you have any examples of cases or situations that have gone well or really, really poorly in that regard when it comes to like the police and medical professional interaction?
2: Well, so I've been, there's like some like anecdotals. I mean, there's stuff in the, well, the case law kind of just describes more, that's kind of like a hard kind of like, so I'm not going to do that, but so I'm going to pull on anecdotal stuff. So like, there's some instances that, you know, like Alex Lubbles, who was a nurse in Salt Lake City. Do you guys remember this? It was like three years ago. And then the, the police officer came into the unit and there's a unconscious patient who had been Aside kind of like this collateral damage to this police chase that had happened. And so the police detective wanted to do a blood draw of this unconscious patient and the nurse was like, I'm not having it. She ended up getting handcuffed and then placed under arrest. So later she was let go because the detective was like, you're obstructing justice or you're getting in the way. And so... There's like that kind of, and then there's other, I mean, one of the doctors that I routinely talk to, she's just like, you know, I have gotten so much authority because I'm a trauma surgeon. So I'll just tell the officer to like, take a step back. Like you can't do that. And I think like it's, so those examples show like that there's like a whole range of ways in which police can respond to medical professionals either like inserting themselves and saying, no, like you can't. Right. And so it's, there becomes like a very personal dynamic thing. What ended up happening with the Alex thing is that she sued and then they won a $10 million settlement. And then they ended up changing the rules in the university of Utah. So now please have to check in at the emergency department. There's also like language that says that they have to treat the staff with respect and such and such. But yeah.
0: Right. Imagine being the unconscious patient being like, I did nothing wrong. Why are you allowed to take my blood to test what? Like that feels like a violation if I was even just laying, like thinking about laying in that bed. So that's really interesting to think about.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's like, it's hard to say even though, I think that part of the reason why I'm happy that this article will hopefully get a lot of attention is I think there's a lot of research that could be done about what's actually going on in these hospitals. I think just I'm not trained as like a empirical researcher in any kind of way, but I've been doing a lot of these interviews. And because of my background in criminal defense, like I ask questions, I think that others might not because I can see kind of like the future ramifications of like certain actions that medical providers take, like they could inadvertently give access to police for questioning when maybe they're not intending to do that, right? Like they might be like, oh, that guy's okay. Now you can go talk to him. And it might get interpreted as like, oh, now you can go talk to him and you've consented for me to talk to him. And he's also like aware enough and not in pain. And, you know, even with his medications, he's okay. There's all sorts of ways that little exchange can get interpreted. And And I think that medical providers aren't really aware of it. So I feel like that's part of like why it's been hidden for so long, because I think that there's all these ways that you have, doctors won't know, like why, how would they know that something that they do has like future ramifications that are harmful for their patient?
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, as a trained litigator in depositions, when you ask someone if they're on any form of medication, you know, and if they answer yes, there's sometimes cause to stop that deposition because they're not giving their best testimony. But why, as a medical provider, would you think like five steps down the line when you're busy and you know, you're asked this question to think about those ramifications. I think that's, it's really interesting and something that would not be considered under other circumstances.
0: Well, and as a layperson thinking about what you're saying, how, like, I feel just as an individual conflicted between this idea of, yes, I, you know, I understand that investigations get solved best when they're addressed faster, right? Like you know, you watch enough of these runaway or kidnapping cases and it's like the first 24 hours that matter, for example. But then on the other side, I understand this other perspective of if you're on pain meds or if I'm in the hospital, I'm not my best self and you should never talk to me and use me as part of your investigation. And so, you know, when you're in this paper and in the future, do you feel like you already have a sense of what you think should be done about this or what are the steps that are required to come up with a better answer to this problem to to rewrite laws or guidelines for what the appropriate use of police presence is in the ER?
2: So there's kind of like the more practical route, right? Versus like maybe like aspirational but i think like practically speaking there are just like small steps that hospitals can start taking because it's not just there's also like once police go in there there's like a ton of other people's patients health information that gets exposed right so like it's not just the person that the police has decided to focus on but it's like the, they're overhearing tons of information they might have their body cameras on like there's all sorts of things that because they're present end up being i think potential hipaa violations for other patients so I think like just even having a point of saying, okay, hospitals, we are the gatekeepers? And we've seen how they're gatekeepers in COVID, right? Like hospitals are very good at gatekeeping when it's necessary. Like, so now like with COVID, hospitals now have very strict visiting requirements and there was a time when no visitors could come in at all. And so they could be like, well, we're monitoring our access. So if you're gonna come in and you wanna do this, you need to at least tell us why you're here and who you're here for right and then tell us so we can document what your legal authority is because in some ways they've been like ghosts like police officers come in nobody's taking notes about why they're there who they're there for so then they end up kind of not being there right practically speaking so i think there's ways in which hospitals can just even do that right so you officer we know are attached to this person and so once we know that is there a way for us to try to balance what you need to get And then balance our general hospitals, privacy concerns so that what you're doing doesn't like impact everybody else. Right. And then I think that there are ways in which things, Oh wait, is our hospital security, are they aligned cooperating too much with law enforcement or are they law enforcement themselves? And they are also just like inadvertently exposing patient health information that we don't know of, like in a couple hospitals where hospital security have just been taking cell phones of black patients who aren't necessarily under patient under police custody and then handing them over to police officers. And then the patients come out of the hospital and they're trying to get their cell phones back, but they can't. Right. So it's like, and that is just an informal channel that was created because if the hospitals were like, no hospital security, you're our employees, you're not employees or like agents of the outside police agency, then that's one thing that they can do. And then I think like, there's education that can happen on both the police side, but also medical providers. Because the more I talk to them and I started watching some of these HIPAA or like kind of these privacy trainings, they don't get trained at all on how they're supposed to deal with law enforcement. So there's a lot of guesswork there. And I feel like if you informed medical providers more about like what steps they should take, that could also alleviate a lot of the problems. So I think that's like, practically speaking, what can be done. I think that there's like, In California, for example, they have thought about making hospital sanctuary spaces for immigration enforcement. I think that there is some movement to try to extrapolate that and make that more broader to like more general police. But, you know, that I think is a harder fight to win because I think it comes into like, what is the role of police? What do we think police should be doing?
1: (sighs) I mean, you know, just practically even on the training front to not have, you know, medical providers having training on how to handle police in the first place, it seems like such a basic step yet such a necessary step. If there's going to be any sort of documenting or, you know, a specific procedure or even some sort of understanding as to what those roles are and how those lines are created between, you know, even hospital security who are, you know, might be police officers themselves and hospitals and medical providers and police, like so many actors that are all trying to work together, but separate. It's a lot, but.
2: Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I can't claim to like even have figured all of it out because I think that there's other issues. Like the next thing that I'm working on is that how hospitals end up becoming places that inmates and prisoners have to go to for healthcare and so then, how that ends up being in differentiated care? Do you, I mean so? Like you hear a hospital doctors talking about, oh, that person's a patient, this person's a prisoner, and so then you end up having this kind of like other bleeding of lines, where hospitals end up becoming de facto jail cells and prison cells because they're made to kind of provide medical care for people who are in this, in the, who are incarcerated. So I think that there's just so many bleeding of lines that you're seeing between the criminal justice system and the hospital system in the U S. And then I think that there's a lot of money that is financial considerations that are involved too. And because I think as I, when I started on this, I thought it was going to be a very simple project and now it's like ballooned. And, but I think that's, I mean, hopefully it will end up with some practical steps that people can start taking because at the end of the day, I really hope that my research at least can improve things for people who are on the ground. Yeah.
0: Oh, what you just said, I mean, all of a sudden these words like separate but equal" like jump to mind and then also follow the money. And what is the answer? You know, is it jails and prisons are notoriously not really humanizing the people who are incarcerated. And so if you have just a separate hospital that's dedicated just to them, is that really going to be the best care that we can offer people as individuals? You know, unlikely, but yet if they're separate tracks within the public hospitals, is that going to be enough? You know, And what do we do about the fact that we just label as human beings we're labeling people who are in prison so that's there's so many layers to unpack but i'm really grateful that you're here doing the work because i think you know from all the people that i've spoken with in this world you are the one who has been most closely aligned and seen the humanity from the time that you were a juvenile defender you know working with these children who are in the system to all of us and and from all I know, like I know your heart and brain are just so truly engaged in this conversation and invested in making a difference here. So I'm so glad that we got to talk to you and explore this. I never would have known and thought about it. So thank you for doing this work.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Happy for having me.
0: If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist identity affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear Women Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWWPodcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.